I'm going to start a series today on the uh, doctrine of God, um, seeking to gain a better understanding of the God that has called us, that has saved us, that has redeemed us. And my, my desire is that we would, as a result of this study, know Him, know Him better. Not know Him intellectually, but know Him in a personal way. A few years back, and I was actually trying to think back how far this is, it was uh, I think about 22 years ago, I remember uh, taking my daughter Rebecca out of the car. And uh, on this night, there was a full moon. So if I'm taking my daughter out of her car, out of the car seat, then you know that goes back a little ways, okay, with my oldest daughter. She's now 25. I remember pulling her out of the car, and uh, she looked over at the full moon, and she said this to me. She said, is that God? <laughs> is that God? Here's a question for you this morning. Who is God to you? Who is God to you? As you think about understanding who he is and how he's revealed himself, there's an important question that I think all of us need to wrestle with, and that is this. What is God like? This is a question that is theological. Okay, We use a word to describe the study of God, and that word is theology, words about God. Okay, just like if somebody is studying life, they're studying biology. And if they're studying individuals, the psyche, they study psychology. When we talk about studying God, we talk about theology. Okay, it is words and truths about God. What is he like? A.W. Tozer said this in the early 1900s. He says, before the church goes into eclipse anywhere, there must first be a corrupting of her simple and basic theology. She simply gets a wrong answer to the question, what is God like? And goes down from there. Passing on an accurate and biblical view of God, he said, is the greatest gift that we can give to the next generation. Okay, having a clear, crystal clear understanding of who God is, even though we admit that it is not possible for us to have a comprehensive understanding of who God is, it is possible for us to know Him. And to know Him should be the goal of the life of every Christian. Because knowing God is central to what it is to be a believer. I want you to turn to two places this morning. I want you to turn to John chapter 17 and Daniel 11. Okay, John 17 and Daniel 11. Just turn there real quickly. If you're looking for where Daniel is, it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel 11 is where I'd like you just to stick a finger in back there. And then John chapter 17. I'm going to read for you a couple verses from John 17. This idea that knowing God is the essence of biblical Christianity. In fact, I think we could argue this very, very clearly from the Gospel of John, that the purpose of the Gospel of John is to tell us that Jesus Christ came to make God known to us, to reveal Him so that we could know Him. So John 17 and verse 3 says this. It says, now this is eternal life. That is, this is life at its best. That they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. All right, this is the prayer of Christ for the church, for his people, that they would know God. Verse 6, 
Jesus says, I have revealed you to those who you gave me to me out of the world. And then verse 17, Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Okay, so numerous times as you move your way through John 17, the desire of the heart of Jesus as he prays to his father prior to his crucifixion is that you and I would know God. And the best way for us to know God is to look at Jesus. And so as Jesus prays, the desire, the burden of his heart is that they would know God because to know God personally is to begin to experience life at its very best. So it is critical, it is important that we take time to know him. And here's the question I just want to submit to you as we begin this series. Do you know God? Do you know God? Okay, and the question is not, do you know things about God? The question is, do you know God in a personal, life-changing way? Has he impacted your life? Can you say that you know him? Now, the problem with this topic, and as I've I spent the last two weeks in, in what I would call my spare time working on this idea of preaching a series on God. And my experience has been great and frustrating, okay? Because I feel like trying to explain God is, to, is like trying to explain to somebody what the ocean is like. Okay, but what you really only have is the capacity to pick up thimbles thimbles full of water and to say, this is what the ocean is like. Why? Because of the vastness and eternity and infiniteness of God. And so as we delve into this topic, please understand that my goal is not to be exhaustive. Okay, because I believe this with all my heart. I believe the subject of the entire Bible is God. And so that everywhere I'm turning in the word, what am I seeing? I'm seeing more and more truth about God, more and more revelation about God. So the, 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 the problem is that the topic is large. My desire is to do something like this. It's to give you a sample spoon. If you've ever been to like a frozen yogurt store, an ice cream store, where they have a multitude of different flavors, and they give you a sample spoon. And the purpose of that sample spoon is to give you a taste. And that taste is to do what? It's to get you to buy something large. Okay, so when we, when we go through these studies on the doctrine of God, I understand this. I am not saying to you everything that can be said. Okay, I'm giving you a sample spoon, a taste of what God is like, of truth about him. And I, 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 my desire would be that in, in studying this topic, we would gain a deep desire. We would have our spiritual appetite whetted to want to know God, to crave for God. So I also thought of this analogy when I thought about the immensity of God. I thought if somebody wants to get to know what a mountain is like, they can take two approaches, can't they? You can rent a plane and say, I want to know what Mount Everest is like. Fly me over Mount Everest. It's an approach you could take. And you would get an understanding of Mount Everest. But if somebody said, hey, do you know Mount Everest? What would you have to say? You would have to say, well, I've I've been there. I've seen it. Okay, what's the better way to get to know something large and immense? Like a mountain. Okay, take a hike. Okay, you take a hike and you you can about, okay, now I know the portions of Mount Everest that I've been on. I know it in a personal way, not just a picture that I've seen. 
Okay, but I know it in a personal way. And so I want to encourage you as we think about knowing God, realize that this, this knowing of God is not purely academic. Are there academic sides to it? Are there truths that we can say about God? And the answer to that question is going to be absolutely yes. But as we begin to delve further into the study, we're going to realize that knowing God is not simply knowing facts about God. It's knowing him personally. It's knowing him in experience. It's one thing to say that God is love. It is another thing to be delivered from your sin by the love of God and to say, now I know God is love. Because we want to differentiate between filling our minds and filling our hearts. Okay, and so a couple of observations from Scripture that I want to make for you this morning, and then I'm going to conclude in Daniel 11. So if you want to flip to Daniel 11 now, you can do that. first question I want to ask is this. Is God knowable? Is God knowable? Well, if you go to Daniel 11 and verse 32, I think you're going to find a statement that tells us that God is knowable. It's the second half of the verse. It says, but the people who know their God, okay, but the people who know their God. All right, so what's the assumption? The assumption is That as Daniel writes, he's writing to people that have a knowledge of God who in some way will be changed by and motivated by that knowing of God. Okay, so there's an assumption. If Jesus prays that the disciples would know God, then obviously knowing God is something that is within the realm of possibility. In Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 23, here's the way that Jeremiah said it. He said, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Or the strong man, boast of his might. Or the rich man, boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast about this. That he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Okay, so what is Jeremiah saying? Jeremiah is saying, if you want bragging rights... If you want the right to say that I have and know something very precious, let it be a personal, transformational knowledge of God. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 17, we find Paul, if you will, pushing out this idea that it is possible to know God. In spite of the fact that he is infinite and beyond grasp, it is also possible to know him. Ephesians 1, 17. Paul praying for the church. He says, I keep asking God. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Okay, so you just, you'll find this theme throughout Scripture. Knowing God is within the realm of possibility. God has revealed truth about himself that is to fill our hearts and to fill our minds so that we can say, I know him. He is a knowable God. Second question is this. How is God knowable? How do we know him? And if you've ever done any study in theology, you know that theologians talk about two ways that we know God. One is through general revelation, that is creation. Okay? And the other is through what we would call special revelation, that is God communicating in word in supernatural ways. That's how we know God. He graciously reveals himself to us in two ways. And here's what I would argue. I would argue that as you look at creation, I would argue this from Scripture, not just based on my own understanding. I would argue from Scripture that when God talks about creation, he talks about creation as saying something about himself. 
Okay, that is to say that when you look at creation, you should see the fingerprints of God all over it. Evidence, as you look at creation, that God was involved in what happened in creation. So in Psalm 8, verses 3 to 4, the psalmist says this. He says, when I consider your heavens. Okay, I don't know if, if, if you've had this experience, step, up, step out of your car in an area where there is a, a, a low level of light pollution. Look up at the sky. Okay, what is the natural response? When you look up at a clear sky, clearer than you've ever seen before, what is, you, somebody doesn't say to you, hey, when you look at that, here's how you ought to respond. No, you have, a, you have a natural response to that natural revelation. There is in your heart a sense of awe. It's going somewhere. Something moves from you towards something else. Or in the, in the case of Scripture, we would say towards someone else. Okay, so the psalmist can say, when I consider your heaven, when I just, I gaze upon them, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care? Who are we? All right, when we look at the immensity of creation revealed by looking up at the stars themselves, there is some sense of awe, there's a sense of wonder, there's a sense of wanting to point it out to somebody and give glory to somebody for something so amazing. That's what we mean when we talk about general revelation. Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2 say, The heavens declare the glory of God. All right? The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display or reveal knowledge. What is that saying? That's saying that as you look at the created realm, and, and not at the micro level, but at the macro level, when you look at the large things that have been made, what happens? What happens is you begin to experience a sense of all. You learn something from complex things about a complex, an infinite, amazing, powerful creator. Right? That's the natural response that comes from general revelation. In Isaiah 6 and verse 3, Isaiah goes into the temple and he hears the angels saying what? Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole what? Earth is filled with his glory. What is glory? Glory is the manifestation of the attributes of God seen in what he has made. So it is, it is inescapable, this, this idea that we, we can know God. And he has revealed himself for us in the amazing things that he has created. In Romans chapter 1, verse 19, or verse, verse 20, it says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes and qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature is clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Meaning, I can't say I don't know anything about God. If I had the capacity to see, to visually grasp things, I should be amazed. And that's at the macro level. We move into the, into the modern era where we know things about the universe that we never knew before. About the, the magnitude and, 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 and just the, the amazingness of the universe that we live in. It is stunning. It is shocking. So we learn about God through general revelation. 
In the book of Acts chapter 14, the Apostle Paul is, is speaking to the people in a certain town. And he, he's saying to them, God has not left himself without testimony. And what does he then appeal to that talks about this testimony, this witness from God? You know what he appeals to? He appeals to the cycle of planting seeds, of rain coming, of things growing, and harvest. And he says that in that very basic cycle, there is a testimony, there is a witness to the provision of God. And that's why, look, this week, what are we going to do? We're going to give thanks across our nation. We're going to give thanks. For what? For that very simple process at various levels, but a very simple process that seeds are sown in the ground, the rain predictably comes, the plants grow, and we have food to eat. And what do we say? Thank you. Right? I mean, that's, that's the natural response of the heart to provision. That's part of general revelation. It's part of what's revealed to us in creation. And, and the fairly normal heart, the, the non-hardened heart does what? It feels a sense of gratitude when provision comes. We learn about God from what has been made. His fingerprints are all over. But we also learn about God through special revelation. The Bible assumes the existence of God in Genesis 1. And 10 times in Genesis 1, it tells us that God is a communicating God. 10 times. All right? He spoke, and it was so. He spoke, and it was so. And as you go throughout Scripture, you find that the God that we serve is a God who communicates, who speaks with us. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 4, the Bible says this. God demonstrated to Moses an amazing sight on a mountain, a bush that burned but was not consumed. Moses is attracted to that manifestation of God on the mountain. When Moses gets there, what happens? God talks to Moses from the bush. Who is he? He is a communicating God who is graciously revealing himself to his people in a way that is redemptive and life-changing. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 20 and 21, it says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of the Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Prophecy never, came, never had its origin in the will of man, but, God, but men spoke from God as they were born along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, what's the argument? The argument that God is a speaking God. 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is God-breathed is profitable. It is helpful. What is God doing? God, throughout the, the early times, is a communicating God. And he has left us with a record of his communication on the pages of Scripture. Okay? So in the pages of Scripture, we learn what God is like. And this is a very humbling experience. And then we have the blessing as believers of the Spirit of God who makes God known to us. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. It says, however, it is, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But you understand these things because God has revealed it to us by the Spirit. The Spirit searches, uncovers all things, even the deep things of God. So what do we have? We have Natural revelation, creation, speaking about God, so God is knowable. We have special revelation, God speaking through his word, recorded on the pages of scripture. And then we have God by the spirit doing what? Opening our eyes so that we can comprehend things that no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind has ever comprehended. And all of a sudden what? The spirit of God begins to work in your heart. And truth about God 
comes alive. Okay, truth about God begins to speak and to make sense and to leave you amazed. So, God is knowable. He is known through revelation, his gracious self-disclosure. He makes himself known to us in nature and in the word. Here's the question I want to ask you then. Is God comprehensible? Okay? Can you know everything that there is to know about God? Okay? Here's, here's what I would argue. I, I can't even know all the things that are said about God on the pages of Scripture. It's just the more you study and you dig in and, and you search and you mine out and you learn, you realize, wow, God is unbelievable and truly incomprehensible, and yet he is knowable. In Job chapter 26 and verse 14, here's what Job says. After, after reflecting on, on things within creation, the just simple things that amazed him, okay, here's what he says. He says, these are the outer fringes of his works. These are the, ed- what we see is what? It's the edge of the knowledge of God. It's the edge of the attributes of God. They're revealed in what? In the things that we're looking at around us. They leave us astonished and amazed at so many levels. Job says this then, he says, how faint the whisper we hear of him. Meaning, as we begin to grasp and seek to understand and know what is revealed about God, what are we hearing? We're just hearing a faint whisper. And then here's what Job says. He says, who could possibly understand the thunder of his power? Folks, do you realize that it is gracious of God? It is kind of God to come in John chapter 1, veiled in flesh. Why? Because for you and I to be fully exposed to all the attributes of God, to the holiness of God, to the amazing things about God, and the power of God would be to be undone. That's what Isaiah says in a vision. He says, I got into the presence of God. I disintegrated. I went through a personal disintegration and God had to reintegrate me by the power of his grace. To know God fully would be absolutely amazing. In this text in Job 26, There's one picture that Job uses to explain something of the glory and majesty of God that is revealed in creation. The analogy he uses is the analogy of clouds. Okay, he talks about how the clouds gather up water, which is what? The evaporation cycle. When was that discovered? Do you know? Remember when the the evaporation cycle was kind of disclosed? I can't remember the date, but I know it's within the last 150 years. This hydrological cycle is explained, right? What does Job say? And you know that the book of Job is the first book written in the Old Testament. You know what Job says? Job says God gathers up the water, holds them in the clouds, brings them over the land, and they drop the rain. And here's what Job, Job asked this question. I thought of this last week as the hurricane was coming. Job says, isn't it amazing that he gathers up the rain in the clouds, literally inches of rain? And what doesn't, what would you expect to happen? If a cloud's holding 12 to 24 inches of rain, what would you expect to happen? Just think about it. Okay, I mean, think about it. And what jumps, that's the outer fringes. I've been hit by water balloons. Okay, and most of them don't hurt, but I've had water balloons hit me that had impact. Okay, you know what that makes you grateful for? That verse? He holds them up and the clouds don't break. You know what it makes you thankful for? Raindrops. I mean, next time you're running through the rain and you're getting mad, you know, you're getting wet, 
had this happen. I got caught in a rainstorm on my motorcycle, and it was stinging me. I was like, Tim, you are so stupid. How do you let yourself get caught? This hurts. And I just think of Job. What if God just let the rain come, just water balloons, okay? And Job says, this is the outer fringe. Those things that you and I look at, that how does it happen? How do it get some of these particulars? And, and all by God's design. And it should leave us as people amazed. He is incomprehensible, <clears throat> but he is knowable. Psalm 145.3 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. There's things about him that are, are, are knowable, that we, can, we, we sing and we give thanks to him and we praise him for what he's revealed. But the psalmist goes on to say, but his greatness, no one can fathom. It is unsearchable. So we know enough about God that leaves us amazed, but we should be humbled by the fact that I don't even begin to understand the fullness of it. Let that truth humble you and, and call you towards God. We know God. We comprehend God by analogies, don't we? So all through the Bible, what do you find? You find the Bible saying, God is like this, and God is like this, and God is, he is like a refuge. He's like a strong tower. He's like a mighty mountain. Okay? He is loving. He's like a father. He's like a husband. He's like a farmer. What are they? They're all analogies. God is like. Why? Because the, the full truth of every one of those pictures, I can't grasp it. So what does God do? He graciously discloses truth about himself through analogies. God is like. So one of the most famous ones that all of us know, Luke chapter 15, we call it the story of the prodigal son. It is really the story of the loving father. What's the purpose of the story? It's to say, look at that, that's love. That lo the love of that father is extravagant. It is not humanly explicable. It defies normal Asian culture standards. It defies all of that in the Near East. It is an amazing, extravagant love. And then what does Jesus do? He steps back and says, that's God. That's what God's like. We understand him through analogies. Why? Because we could, we're only capable of grasping the outer fringes, the edges. So folks, if you know the love of God in your heart, you've been changed by the love of God, know this, there is more to that love than you can ever comprehend. It is far beyond what you can understand. What has God done? He's given you the outer fringes of it for now. Why? It's all you can handle. It's all you can handle. He gives you the outer fringes of his holiness. Why? Because a full disclosure of his holiness would destroy you. So we know him. He is a, know he is a fascinating God. He's a knowable God. Here's a humbling thought. For all eternity, we will be in the presence of God doing what? We're doing all the things that God's called us to do. But one of the aims of eternity will be that we will begin to learn and know more and more about God. And school will never end. We will, I know for a lot of the teenagers thinking, what did you just say? Okay. I want to go to heaven now. Okay. No, it's, you, you'll be learning things. It's like when somebody shares stuff with you that amazes you. A few years back, I was exposed to the fact that the earth spins at 1,000 miles an hour, travels at 24,000 miles an hour around the world in this orbit, it amazed me. Okay, I don't mind learning stuff like that. I don't mind, I'm amazed by that. It tells me more about God. These are the outer fringes. He is comprehensible. And when you comprehend him, it is amazingly humbling. 
what we learn about God are called attributes. Attributes are essential and unchangeable characteristics. They are what makes God, God. They're not learned behaviors. Okay, I am learning to love my wife. God did not have to learn me. Love is the essence of what God is. It is an attribute of God. Power is an attribute of God. If I want to get stronger, I have to go work out. Okay, in a body that won't let me work out anymore because I have other issues, other pains. Okay, I want to, but I'm like, I can't because this shoulder, this rotator cuff has been killing me lately. Okay, God, God has never gotten stronger. He has never sat back and said, boy, I just wish I knew what to do in this situation. He has never faced that dilemma. Attributes are the unchangeable, essential characteristics and nature of God. God loves because God is love to the very core of his being. It is natural for him to love in that kind of a way. Now, here's the question I want you to ponder this morning. Why does God reveal himself? What is the aim of his revelation? To what end does he make himself known? Why does he, why did he create a world that is so unbelievable? Why is the world that I live in filled with color? Think about it. You used to watch black and white TV if you've been around long enough, right? Why did God color the world? He didn't have to do that, but he did it. So that we would be amazed, so that we would see this, this reflection of his glory. All the earth, the Bible says, cries glory, majesty, honor. To who? And we all have a sense, yeah, I want to I go somewhere with this. You go to God. And it's not a matter of speculation, learning about God. No, go to the truth of his word. Learn about him. Look at the evidence around you. See the fingerprints of God. Stand amazed. Be amazed at the glory of God. Why does God reveal himself? Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And we all have these questions, don't we? We'll have mystery in our minds. We have questions that we want to get answered. Most of us have thought, when I get to heaven. Right? First thing. Job said that. And then God asked him a couple questions. What did Job say? Whoops. When you're in God's presence, you will not have questions. Why? Because everything will become sight. It'll become clear. The struggles and difficulties of life will be set into perspective of an awesome, sovereign God who doesn't make, he's not capable of mistakes. His love is unending. He's not trying to love you. He loves you. It's an essential characteristic of his being. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things that are revealed are for what? Us and our children. Folks, what does that mean? It means that God, through natural and general and, and, and special revelation, has revealed truth about himself to you and I to affect us, to change us, not to fill our head. Okay, he doesn't give us the Bible so that you can become more knowledgeable. It's not the aim. The book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and ver- or 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 1 says this knowledge puffs up. You can know truth about God. The Pharisees knew a lot about God, but they did not know God. 
And so the question that I want you to wrestle with and ponder this morning is this. Not do you know about God impersonally, intellectually, but do you know God? Have you been redeemed? Have you been changed? Have you been drawn into by the Spirit a relationship with Him wherein He is making Himself known to you? I think that's the essence of what Jesus is saying in John chapter 17, verse 3. Father, I want them to know you. And I pray that they will know you. That's what Paul's saying in Ephesians 1.17. Father, I want them to know you. That's what he's praying for. It is knowledge that is to create a personal relationship. Now, I can say this morning, I know Phil Satilla. Okay? I can say that. That's a fact. Okay? I've spent time with Phil. I know him. Now, I can also say to you, I know the President of the United States, right? I mean, I, if you said, well, do you, do you know him? Well, yeah. Do you know him like you know Phil Satilla? No. No. So I can say to you this morning, do you know God? Or do you know God? Do you see? The purpose of Revelation is to what? It's to fill us with joy and affections and love for God. A love and affection that is to change us. It's to bring us to a place where we realize that God is not helpful and fascinating. Okay? Back in July at the prodding of a friend, I got a new phone. Okay? I can talk to my phone. Okay? And my phone can help me. And I'm fascinated by it. Okay? I am. It fails me all the time, but I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I can tell you this, honestly. Maybe some of you have. I haven't. I have not fallen in love with my iPhone. Okay? I don't have deep affection. I don't feel like I relate to it like I relate to God. It talks to me. It helps me. Folks, please understand this. If your relationship with God is merely one of fascination and head knowledge, and he's helpful like a map is helpful, it's not his end. It's not the aim. It's not why he revealed himself to you. He revealed himself to you so you would know him. Not like you know the president. Not like I like my cell phone. No. In, in, a, in a way that is transforming. Now real quick look at Daniel 11.32. Because I think this is a very important verse. It comes in the middle of a time in scripture that is... Very tense. It's the, the, it prophesies the rise of a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, who will be a, a, a man who stands strongly against God. And that standing against God has an effect on people who know God and love God. So I want you to think about this with, with me real quickly. This verse in Scripture says, With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, meaning that there are those within the realm of the so-called people of God who are negatively affected by the words of this coming ruler. Okay, he's a Greek ruler, comes in the time frame of about 160 BC, prior to the coming of Christ. He wreaks havoc. He stops temple worship. He desecrates the altar. He brings, he ravages Jerusalem. And it has an effect on people. Some people cave in. And then some people know God. And notice what this verse says. It says, with flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, who are weak in their faith, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. 
Okay, the ESV translates this verse in this way. It says, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. One translation says, they will do great exploits. Why? They know God. Okay, so the encouragement that I want to give you this morning is that when you know God, it's going to begin to transform your life. It is transformational knowledge. It's not academic knowledge. Okay, the reason God is revealing himself is to change you. And the reason we should pursue the knowledge of God is not so that we can be brighter than other people theologically, but so that we can say, I know God. And that knowledge of God is affecting me. The idea of this text is this. When someone is raging against the true God, they can't stand idly by. Okay, they are, they take their stand and they actively resist that which opposes the knowledge of and the glory of their God. We find evidences of this in Daniel chapter 1 through 6. And these are, are things that J.I. Packer points out in his book called Knowing God. He talks about this idea of that, that when you know God, not intellectually, but personally, and Pat, when you know him, it changes you. It affects how you respond to pressure, threats, temptation. It, it changes how you see life. Because these things are revealed for us and for our children. That is for the benefit of us. Truth about God. So that it is transforming. A couple observations then from, from, from the book of Daniel. About, about how knowing God personally affects behavior. In Daniel chapter 1. Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are brought into the land of Babylon. Their country is destroyed. The, the temple of God that they know to be the living God has been decimated. They're taken into a foreign land. The first thing that is offered to them is a change of diet that will lead to the desecration of their walk with God. It will lead to what we would call ritual uncleanness. Well, how do you respond? In a circumstance where you are tempted with something that will bring defilement into your life, and the answer to the question is this. It depends on your relationship with God. Daniel is faced with this temptation. Start eating this food. He's young, but he could not rest, and he could not sit idly by. He felt bound in his knowledge of God to challenge the temptation that was placed before him. So in Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, what happens? Look what Scripture says real quick. Daniel 1, verse 8 and 9. What was Daniel's response? Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official permission not to defile himself himself in this way. And he asked for a different diet, okay? And the man that he's talking to is scared to death because he says, if the king finds out I'm violating his law, blah, 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 bad things are going to happen. Daniel says, I'm trusting God. I won't eat your food, okay? First thought is this. Those that know God are energized to stand for God, Right? If you know God, that knowledge of God will give you courage to stand in the face of what? Struggles, difficulties, temptation. Seventy years later, when Daniel is a man probably in his 80s, a decree goes out from the king that people cannot pray to anybody but him. He deifies himself. Daniel chapter 6 and verse 10 says, and, and, and this is on the threat of death, if you 
go and pray to other gods other than to King Nebuchadnezzar, what's going to happen? You're going to be thrown in the lion's den. And the, and the, the response of the king to Nebuchadnezzar is, who could deliver you from that? Right? Well, depends what you think about God. Depends what you know about God. It will determine. So what, is, what does Daniel do? The Bible says in, in Daniel 6.10, Daniel went up to his room, and he opened the windows towards the east, towards Jerusalem, and he prayed just like he had always done. And what happens? A little bit later they come and they say, you know what, Daniel isn't respecting your laws. He's respecting this other God. Why? Because his knowledge of God was energizing courage to stand. When? When he's in his 80s. He is still standing for truth. Another thought that comes to mind, as you read through the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that is not flattering to him. Okay, it, the, the revelation, the interpretation of it is devastating to the king. Daniel knows the interpretation. He's called in before the king to give the revelation to the king that he knows will probably lead to having his head cut off. Verse 24 of Daniel 4. Daniel goes to the king. He says, this is the interpretation, O king. This is the decree the mo- that the Most High has issued against my Lord, the king. You'll be driven away from people. You will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass over you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. What does Daniel do? He responds to this profoundly difficult situation by having what? Great thoughts about God. What is this great thought about God? God, you've given me a capacity to go in and interpret this dream. I'm going to go in and interpret this dream. It may cost me my life, but you have filled me, and you are the God who is sovereign. You're in control of my life. I understand that. Therefore, I'm going to step forward with great courage to do great things for you. Why? Those who fear the Lord will stand and take action. Daniel knew God, and he had great thoughts about God. He understood in this text that history is God's story. It's not just the unfolding of events on a chronological timeline. It's the work and plan of God. And the knowledge of the fact that God was in control, knowing God in that kind of a way as sovereign, changed Daniel's response to the circumstance. And he went in and proclaimed the truth. <clears throat> Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are faced with the challenge of their own in Daniel chapter 3. Probably the most familiar story from the book of Daniel along with the story of Daniel and the lion's den, is the story of the three men who were cast into the fiery furnace. All right, what had happened? Well, the king Nebuchadnezzar had built a statue of himself. He had proclaimed, look, when you hear the trumpets blow in the city of Babylon, everyone who is there must immediately stop what they're doing, bow down, and give homage to King Nebuchadnezzar. That was the decree. And if you didn't do it, what was... What was the outcome? The outcome was this. If you don't do it, you're going to be thrown into a furnace and there is no one who can deliver you. Okay, that's the challenge given to the three friends of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, tell us about the decree that anyone who doesn't, verse 6, who doesn't fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing fire. And then what you find is that this event happens and who doesn't bow down? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down. And the question becomes, why? 
Well, because they're, they're Jewish people who believe that the Lord our God is one and you shouldn't bow before any other God but the true and living God. There's a report of their noncompliance and then there is an issuing of threats. Verse 13, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and the pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready, fall down and worship the image I made, and it will be very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hands? Okay? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God that we serve is able to save us, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Now, folks, here's, I think, what is important as you read this. Okay, they knew God and they knew the cost of following God and still followed God, which is to say what? Those that know God will be characterized by great courage. They will have boldness in the face of opposition. Why? Because when you know God, you will find courage to stand. That's what they found. The threat, who can deliver you? Their response, God can. He may not, but he can. And that's what we're banking on. Our knowledge of God is going to give us courage to stand for him in this circumstance. I think you know the rest of the story. The three friends of Daniel are thrown into the fire. And here's a fascinating question for you. Where is everybody else? Where are all the other exiles? If you study the history, you find that Daniel's probably at, at, at the palace in Susa in the land of Babylon. But where are all the other Jews? Where are all the other exiles? Out of all the people that were taken into the land of Palestine or into the land of Babylon in exile, only three have maintained courage because they what? They know God. And that knowing God is causing them to do great exploits, to stand firm and to honor God. They're not ignorant of the consequences of their decision, but they are knowledgeable of the power of God. So they're thrown in. And, and you know the rest of the story. King Nebuchadnezzar is looking into the fire, watch, you know, getting ready to watch this conflagration. They're going to be burned up. And all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar is like, how many people do you throw in? It's like, three. And then why do I see four? walking around and one like the son of God. If you were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, just you're thrown in thinking, okay, it's curtains. And you see one like the son of God. For them, what did it do? It brought contentment. 
See, when you know God, what does it do? It brings contentment into the difficult circumstances of your life. Why? He goes into the worst with you. For those on the outside, what does it do? A true knowledge of God brings terror. That's what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. He is terrified by what he sees. While the people of God who know God are encouraged by what they see. What is this? What is this story about? This story is about the power of God. It's a story about God intervening into the life of his people. It's a Christophany. It's a pre-Christmas revelation of the Son of God. And what is he doing? He's entering into the fire to deliver his people. He's entering into their circumstances to deliver them from their circumstances. And those that know the Lord in this kind of a way experience a contentment that defies explanation. Folks, this morning, I want to encourage you, like Daniel, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to know God. Because those that know him won't cave under the pressure that is coming. They'll stand and do great things for God. If you find your faith weak, if you find your standing to be something that's vacillating from, from, from strong to moderate to weak, and you say, Pastor Tim, what do I need to do? Number one, take care of any sin in your life. Let the holiness of God show you who you are and change you. Secondly, get a clear view of God. Know Him personally. Seek Him intimately. And allow Him to begin to bring into your life courage and a capacity to stand in difficult circumstances and to do great things. To not sit back. But to say, God, I want you to use my life. I think the promise I can make to you this morning is, if you know God, He will change you. And I'm going to encourage you in the words of Scripture. Press on to know the Lord. Go hard after God. In faith, seek to know him and trust him. If you've never trusted him, realize this. Jesus Christ went into the fire, the hell that you deserve on Calvary's cross, and took the hit that you deserve. Because he is a God of love. On the third day, he rose again victorious over the fires of hell that raged against him on the cross. And he came back to life. Why? Because he is king of kings and lord of lords. He is the king of life. And death. He overcame it. And by faith and trust in him. You can experience forgiveness today. And know him personally. Intimately. In a way that is not intellectual. Speculation. But it is a personal intimate knowing of God. That will change tomorrow. And the next day. And the rest of your life if God tarries. May we as a church family. Press on to know the God who is knowable, though incomprehensible, <clears throat> so that we can say, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We can say in Romans 1.8, there is therefore now no condemnation. We have boldness and courage. Why? Because Christ has paid the price for our sin. And we are forgiven by the power of God and by the love of God that transforms us and changes us. For his glory. Would you bow with me this morning? <clears throat> Father, we thank you so much for your word.